0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.
1: There's a Popeye's brunch? No, Popeye,
2: no, P pa- 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 A P E It's, it's, a, it's, oh, a. A, it's an Indian
3: I'm restaurant sorry. in uh, Washington D.C.'s Logan Circle neighborhood. Yeah. Oh, I uh, apologize.
1: <laughs> Can we start the weeds?
3: Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined today by Jane Costen and the great Ezra Klein, original Weeds personality. Uh, Jane and I, we were- OG Weeds. We were we were just going to do, uh, apparently we are both uh, Jack Reacher fans and wanted to just do a podcast about that. But Ezra said, no, we should talk about a policy issue. It is called The Weeds. Uh, so I, I, I think the question of Trump and trade has hung over his administration- from the beginning. Right. Uh, over the past week, we've seen a baffling sequence of events in which Trump first announced that tariffs that were supposed to start on September 1st were not going to start. And so the stock market went up. And then uh, last Friday, uh, he announced right after the markets closed in a you know clearly deliberate timing, he announced that other tariffs were going to go up even higher because he was going to crack down on China. Then over the weekend, there was a report that Trump was having second thoughts about that because the financial market response had been bad. But then he came back and said, no, the only second thought I was having was that I wish the tariffs had been even higher. Some people freaked out even more. Uh, But then on Monday morning, he said, oh, you know, this is working out great. The Chinese are coming back to the table and I'm sure we're going to make a deal. And financial markets were enthusiastic again. So the actual net change over the past two weeks has been tariffs are higher than they were, but formally speaking, Trump's position has softened. Uh, but mostly, everything is very confusing now. Yes, because just to be clear. Some tariffs are in effect, and then
1: there's a set of proposed ones that have been delayed. That, that's an important thing there.
3: Exactly. So what happened in the, in the most literal sense is that some hypothetical tariffs got delayed, but the tariffs that were already on have gotten even higher. Um, so so the, the trade war is intensifying more or less, uh, but Trump has backed off his most aggressive rhetoric about all of this. And then like the further background of this is that there's a lot of concern that the global economy is slowing down, uh, which may or may not have a lot to do with these tariffs. Right. Uh, but it's clear that the stock market, at least to an extent, like hangs on Trump's every tweet and goes up or down based on how conciliatory or aggressive they feel like he's being. And he seems just pulled back and forth between, on the one hand, a strong belief that confrontational trade policies are a good idea and an also strong belief that he wants the stock market to be high.
2: So here's my question. And I'm, I'm aware you know, I am coming into this conversation as a neophyte, so. Be kind From China's position, what impetus do they have to do absolutely anything? Because the under you know the idea here is that China has been doing things that we are not happy with, and we have not been happy for a long time with regards to intellectual property rights, with regard to like a, a host of things. Mm-hmm. So the tariffs are intended to make China not do those things. Yes. Is there any evidence? At all that China has stopped or would stop or could stop doing the things that we're not happy about if tariffs continued or got higher.
1: So let me cut this into two sides. So there's a question of will they stop and then of like why might what is the theory of the whole thing? Right. And so the the tariffs that are being put on and China is putting on retaliatory tariffs are hurting the American economy, and they're also hurting the Chinese economy. Um, One of the estimates I saw said that it would shave um, 0.4 percentage points of American GDP growth off, but 0.6 percentage points of Chinese GDP growth off. So like, this is bad for both sides in 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 a pretty real way. Um, now people will make the argument that China is better able to sustain this because number 1 they have a like a political system and an economy that they manage in a straightforward author- authoritarian and se- at least semi-competent way and number 2 they have full control over their media. And so on the American media you have a lot of podcasts like the weeds talking about how this is a dumb idea and you shouldn't do this and the stock market is freaking out in the Chinese media there's a lot of patriotic rhetoric um they're showing old movies about the korean war apparently you know about the uh, another time china repelled the invaders there's been um a lot of discussion uh in again in chinese media about how much dissension there is in america over this the premiere is getting people ready for a long siege so it does not look like they want to back down and it does not seem that they think that um they're holding the weaker hand here, but the the the, the stick is that this does hurt them. Um, that on, on that Trump is right. The thing he's wrong about is that he doesn't seem to believe it hurts us, which it does. And I would say that if I were an unpopular president, whose only possible hope of winning re-election is that the economy is pretty good, but the economy is maybe slowing down. I would not be starting a trade war with
3: China. Right. I would not do that. Right. I mean, I, there's asymmetries on both sides, right? So the Chinese economy is more vulnerable to trade disruptions than the American economy is uh, because China just does more trade than we do. On the other hand, Donald Trump is much more vulnerable to losing reelection than the dictators of China are. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a sort of a, a duality. I would say the bigger question, though, is like, what does winning look like? That's this, my question right? as
2: well, because I, I'm i not sure what the ultimate hypothetical victory at which Trump would say, because this has been a part, you know, this was part of his campaign message, is his belief in understanding that protectionism via tariffs is good. Yeah. So my, my question would be that, you know, the assumption that one might have is that, You do these tariffs to retaliate for China doing things, and then China comes back to the hypothetical table and says, we're going to stop doing the things. Now, if that were to ever happen, like, what is the victory scenario here?
3: I feel like there's like four different things in the mix here, and they're... At least a little bit contradictory and some of them are directly contradictory, right? One, which I think you saw most clearly in Trump's campaign, is the idea that we are going to prevent American jobs from leaving for Asia and ideally bring jobs back from Asia – to the United States. That is, I think, a very uh, emotional topic for a lot of people who live in manufacturing communities that experience decline in the 21st century. It's a very potent electoral message. It's the sort of image of like Trump standing up for American workers vis-a-vis China. Um, but if you look at the demands that are being made on the Chinese government, they don't line up that well with that priority, that the main things we are asking for China is to sort of treat American companies more generously, to stop stealing their intellectual property, to stop forcing them into unfavorable joint venture agreements. And if you think about that, right, th- this is something that, you know, like Trump is a like a rich business guy. He uh, talks on the phone with a lot of other rich businessmen. This is rich business people's complaint about China. It's the thing they want the American government to do for them. But if they succeed, um. The outsourcing of jobs is going to accelerate. Uh, right now a good reason to not put your factory in China is that the Chinese government is not going to respect your trade secrets or your intellectual property uh, so if if we change that you could see actually an acceleration of job losses a third thing that Trump personally is very interested in is the bilateral trade deficit so like we buy more Chinese stuff than China buys American stuff you could close that in a lot of ways I, I think most economists think this is a dumb question to focus on because, Uh, What matters is all the countries, but Trump is really into it. Um, So the Chinese could in principle address that by just agreeing to buy more American stuff. And so in that case, you're championing the interests of American exporters, uh, which is farmers, uh, pharmaceutical companies, um, people who manufacture airplanes, uh, a few other things like that. Trump is often very into promoting exports of U.S. military equipment, but Getting to the fourth point, we presumably don't want to sell high-tech military equipment to China. And that's the fourth thing is that there's a growing sense in the national security community that just having the American and Chinese economies be so intertangled is a bad idea and that there should just be less – like less commerce between the US and China because China is a great power adversary. And in that case, you don't actually want the trade war to be resolved. Right. From from that China Hawk point of view, like the trade war is an end in and of itself. You were just trying to de-link the economies so that what happens in China is no longer important to America. And so from, from that point of view, right, like a big win in the trade war would be not a resolution with a handshake, but would be something like Apple saying our supply chain is uh, going to Vietnam now.
2: So and this has been. Peter Navarro, who kind of runs trade policy, this has been his thing. You know, he in 2012, he came up with the book Death by China. And he basically thinks that we've been in a trade war since, like, 2013. It's just that we didn't know it. We're losing. Yes, but we didn't know we were in it. So, of course, we were losing. But, uh, yeah, it, this, it's, it seems like a strange thing to have the trade war be the point of the trade war. I think that
1: there are a couple of... Um Other pieces of this one, I want to say, Matt, that was a super clear rundown of that. And I really want to emphasize a point that if a bunch of these demands got met, you would actually have more outsourcing. I think that's important and underplayed in the debate. But I think the other question here is, at what level of this does Trump actually care? Sure. And I think that's always an important question with Donald Trump. So there's one version where what Donald Trump cares about is a symbolic test of strength with China. So what he wants is to be seen by the American people, by his base, as going to war with China, economic war in this case, thankfully, um, and then gaining some set of concessions that puts us in a superior position to China in a PR way. And I think the model for this is Donald Trump, like he had strong views on trade with China, has strong views on trade with uh, Canada and Mexico. And so he wanted to renegotiate NAFTA. And there are a lot of people who for a long time have had a series of uh, arguments and critiques of NAFTA very much along the lines of some of the first three that Matt was making with China um, and very much along the lines of the outsourcing questions. Donald Trump got a couple of quite small concessions and some of them would even call concessions just alterations of the deal and then renamed it and declared victory and went home. And like now we're stable with Canada and Mexico. And so there's one issue here of Did Trump just want to confront China such that he could say he did, but he actually doesn't really care what the end of that confrontation is so long as he can say he won it? Because if he can, then this is going to be pretty easy to resolve. And I've heard people make the argument that, yeah, China's just going to buy a couple hundred billion dollars of U.S. stuff and, you know, everything will get back to normal. Whereas if if Trump actually wants to, say, close the trade deficit with China, there are ways to do that, but it's a little harder if he wants to do bigger things on um, enforcing IP and how do you uh, enforce accountability on that and how do you look at it, that all gets much harder. And I think it's a very, it, it is an unknown to me right now what he would consider victory. Or are we just looking at something where he wants to call something victory? The people under him are filling in the details. And which one of those sides actually ends up deciding what the end of this is, is you know, totally impossible to predict.
3: Yeah, let's take a break. And then I want to talk about that USMCA precedent that has referred to it and what it may teach us about this.
4: Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash NAP. That's N-A-P-P.
0: In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.
3: So as Ezra mentioned, with NAFTA, Trump was like, this is terrible. It's the worst agreement ever. We're going to tear it up. And then what they settled on is Canada agreed to buy more American dairy products. Uh, Mexico agreed to um, basically raise the minimum wage specifically for people who work in auto factories. And then also both countries agreed to slightly um, basically pay more for prescription drugs. So that's not nothing, but it was not like – you wouldn't take something from, like, the worst trade agreement ever to, like, an amazing win for the American economy just based on Canada agreeing to buy more yogurt. Like, it's it's not that big of a deal. And then Trump has not even made getting Congress to ratify this thing an important priority of yeah, his. Yeah, that's a key point. So it's like even Trump knows this isn't a big deal but he like he won it right he he got what he wanted and it, i've spoken to people um you know who who used to work in the Trump administration and their line on this is that the China thing was ready to be parked in a place like that that they were going to say look The Obama administration had been pushing for changes in the U.S.-China relationship for eight years, but they were doing it very soft. Trump came in. He made a big deal out of it. He put a scare into them. He made some tariffs, and they were going to make some concessions, not like, fundamentally altering the nature of the relationship, but some wins for the United States in terms of market access primarily. And it was all good and like we had it under control. We had tamed the protectionists and like we were gonna turn this into a, a bargaining win. But then the Chinese walked away from the table They say that they had initially thought this was going to work, that because China has an authoritarian political system, this could be claimed a win for China in the Chinese media and Trump could claim a win in the American media. But then the Chinese picked up and walked away. And that's what has kind of destabilized it. And, you know, I do think that that's a relevant consideration here. We have so much less insight into Chinese decision making than we do American decision making, but like, while well, I think it's basically true that like Trump would love to not next week, but like in summer 2020, like win the trade war with China. By, like agreeing to some small changes, and then the stock market will soar. It's not totally obvious what the Chinese are doing. That one one potential view is: look, they don't want to be bullied by the United States of America. They don't want to send the signal that Mexico sent by making this change to the minimum wage, which, like, even though it's not the biggest deal in the world, um, they they caved on that point. Then Mexico wound up caving uh, secondarily to a new Trump tariff threat on sling related to immigration. And they have now established a pattern whereby American presidents can threaten random tariffs that would be costly to both countries and bully the Mexican government into making policy changes. And China is, um, you know, I mean, this is like an old joke about Mexico, uh, so far from God, so close to the United States of America. Um, And and like China is trying to be a peer to the United States of America and may just be completely unwilling to do anything under the circumstances of, like, a president who, like, they know as well as anyone else does that, like, he is regarded by American elites as an idiot. Right. And, like, they maybe don't want to get pushed around by President Bozo.
2: I think that 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 also is something, you know, the Chinese have the same insight into Trump that we all do. And so I think that there's a sense also that, like, Trump's views on the tariff issue and on protectionism more broadly, you know, the Chinese can make the assumption that this is not like a deeply thought through economic argument, but this is Trump Trumping. And I think that that's the challenge here is that this is not with any other president. This is with Donald Trump Trump. And this is with Donald Trump and Peter Navarro. This is like with a specific cadre of economic thinkers in a very loose definition of the term thinker. And I think that, you know, there's the idea that if you're the Chinese government, like, what exactly is the impetus here? Because I I recognize that the tariffs are impacting the Chinese economy more than they are impacting the American economy. But like... The Chinese government can just be like, "Life's tough, isn't it?" And that's basically can be their strategy, as as Fred pointed out, that, that they're making the argument like this is a patriotic sacrifice which we are making, and the Americans are way less happy about it than we are, and we can just do this for a long time.
1: So there's a Evan Osnos awesome piece in the New Yorker that I've been thinking about while we've been talking, and he wrote it, I would say, about a year ago, but we we can put it in show notes, and. Austin as for people who don't know, was a correspondent in China for a very long time, wrote an award-winning book from there. He's really, really um, well-sourced and, and, and thoughtful on the U.S.-China relationship. And the point of his piece is that he goes back after Trump is elected and talks to key figures in the Chinese government and political elite. And they all say it wasn't supposed to happen this quickly. Like, the, we believed that we were going to be the superpower. We were on an arc, you know, and it was and, and we're a patient people. And we know these things go in cycles. And so we believed America is falling and China is rising. And that in the coming decades, there would be an inflection point. But America was not supposed to fall this quickly. And and he relays people being like, is this really happening? Is this as crazy as it seems? And so to to some of the points, um, Jane, that you are making, one of the, the things here that could be happening is that this is an opportunity for China to actually break us a little bit. Right. In the eyes of the rest of the world. So the Obama administration, and I think this is actually important context, whether or not you bought this argument, their whole thing for the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal was that it was showing, showcasing American leadership on economic um, order setting. So this was a partnership in China's backyard. Uh, it was a partnership that did not include China.
2: And very specifically, you know, this is...
1: Very specifically.
2: uh, ...intended to kind of bring together our allies in the South Pacific. And this was a huge deal in New Zealand and Australia. So,
1: and so when that was destroyed... That was first one thing for um, like people who worry about China here. Uh, Many of them felt that that was like relieving us of some leadership and handing it over to them. And that was also um, how it was taken there. And they've been active on trade deals in the interim, too. And then now Trump confronts him directly in a way where he has very little support among American political elites and the ability after TPP fell apart and China stepped into that breach to then, in the eyes of the world, possibly break us in a trade conflict Uh, has got to be appealing to a political system that is becoming more nationalist, more sure of itself, and increasingly thinks that America has become a dysfunctional mess. I wanted to ask, Matt, um, on the other side of this, something you will hear sometimes from people in the American trade community or in the business community, and I've heard this talking to both policy experts and and people who run uh, corporations, is that Trump is right about the need to confront China in this way, but just in a Trumpish fashion is doing it poorly. Yes. The the national uh, interest had a version of this argument where they wrote the Trump administration is right to confront China's systematic economic predation, but its chosen approach has little chance of meaningful success. So here's my question. Is is this just like a good idea with bad execution? Is Trump's view of China correct, but he just doesn't like have the right details and the right strategy and the right thoroughness in his own uh, in his
3: own behavior to carry it out? I don't think so. I mean, I, I do always want to convey to people like a valid sense of what the qualified experts think. And like, it is true. Most people who you talk to about this, like foreign policy community people, business people, um, they will say, here's what we should be doing. We should be not picking this fight with Korea about washing machines. We should be not fussing around with the Europeans about their cars. We should be not giving Canada a hard time about its dairy. We should be going back to essentially exactly Obama's trade policies, except more strongly emphasizing that the point of these policies is to confront China and so that we should gang up with Europe and say, look, uh, right now Airbus makes passenger planes and Boeing makes passenger planes and you're playing us off against each other and trying to create your own airplane industry. But now we're going to tell you that, no, like we're teaming up to make you make changes. And this to me reeks of like bipartisan elite consensus stuff in like the worst possible way, that it is trying to jam together like a nexus of conventional pro-globalization policies that have not worked out very well for working-class Americans and give them a like light rebrand as an anti-China, quote-unquote, policy, but like— this goes back to the spin on the TPP, right? Where So it's like it, half the time you would come into a conversation and be like, why are we doing this? It's like, well, we got to do it to establish American leadership against China. So, okay, fair enough. But then if the whole point of this was American leadership against China, like why was there so much effort put into raising pharmaceutical prices that are paid by consumers in Southeast Asia? Why was there so much effort into breaking – Canadian dairy farmers' opposition to American milk exports, right? Like there's a kind of like business community, right? Like like a lobbyist-driven trade process in the USTR's office that like barrels forward and just – flips around like what the reason, quote unquote, we need to do this is. So it's like sometimes we need to consolidate the democratic transition in Mexico. Sometimes we need to build alliances against China. But always the specific thing that we need to do somehow is get countries to change their banking and pharmaceutical regulations to be more favorable to American banks and pharmaceutical companies to promote our agribusiness exports and then to open our markets to new foreign textile imports. And like I, I, I think it is like fundamentally incorrect that we need to quote unquote confront China in this way. But but let me abstract it out
1: because I largely agree with that point, right? To the extent that you're you end up in a now more than ever we need the same trade deals we've always had. Fair enough. But the the version of this that I hear is actually a little more aggressive even than that. Like I, I talk to people who run who run companies and they're just, and they will just say that. The level of cybersecurity breach that China has executed into mm-hmm. like every major institution in American life, in their view, is so far beyond what people realize. Um, for all the talk about Russia, that, that it really is Chinese hackers who are just everywhere, who are watching everything. And I, I, I'm not in a place to evaluate that, but I, I take seriously that these people run big um, security teams for uh, very, very um, lucrative and, and, and private data. And, and this is what I've heard in the government as well. And China really is trying to break into all that. They're not trying to do so for the reasons Russia is, but there is a very large cyber espionage campaign. The IP theft, which is a related issue, but is also conducted differently to the companies that are basing some operations in China, is a real deal. So like that, your point there, Matt, I think is correct, but it's actually, a, it seems to be a similar version of the same point uh, of the same critique holding constant the idea that you could do this in bad ways, yeah. does America need a more confrontational, hostile posture to China, conducted in some way that is re- aligned to the actual problems we're trying to solve? Because I-, I tend to come on the side of this that I-, I worry about great power competition and would like to keep it low. But like the, the argument that I get pushed back on here is that yeah, but that's just trying to take tremendous advantage of us, which they're doing in ways that people don't fully realize.
2: I feel as if that there is a version of this conversation in which the person putting on the pressure is not Donald Trump. Hmm. And in which case, I think that like that argument makes sense because I think the security issues are huge. And I think that there, you know, there have been a lot of concerns, even in like American universities with regard to Confucius yep. Institutes and like just the role of Alleged spycraft taking place. I mean, that is a concern. the The issue is that the person addressing this concern puts the you know this precise issue on the same level as having long Twitter fights about Anthony Scaramucci, <laughs> well, which you know... does not fill me with you know the milk of human kindness with regard to how this is being done.
3: I'm like a like a, a humble uh, economics writer, and you know, this is where I do get puzzled, right? Because it it does seem like on some level, what's going on is a shift in like big picture national security policy thinking that there is a elite driven desire. And, and by calling it elite driven, I, I don't want to like necessarily like cast dispersions on it. But It is elite-driven, right? There is a group of people in the military world, in the business world, in the sort of cybersecurity nexus between those things who feel that it is time for a kind of Cold War redux approach to China. And you really see this in like, Tom Cotton has been like running around telling everyone how excited he is about buying Greenland.
2: For this exact reason. Right,
3: which is part of this confrontation with China because right. we can't let them have their precious uh, Arctic and and the specific logic of that as applied to Greenland is is interesting but it's like the the larger you know premise is like it's time for a big throwdown with China I think as we discovered in the in the space force episode of the weeds yes. like that's also actually what that like, it's, it's about China right like I was hoping the space force would be about aliens it's not but it's about China
2: it's way less cool
3: I think it would be um, productive to try to have that discussion in a little bit of a like a clearer way in the political system because I don't see like rampant anti-Chinese sentiment as like a huge driving force for voters. Whereas I do see like concern about manufacturing jobs as like not like most people don't live in manufacturing communities, but the people who do are like really fired up about this. And I feel like a certain amount of just like bait and switch is being on behalf of uh, geopolitical concerns that I frankly don't really understand.
2: Right, that the the idea that we are supposed to conclude that rural Americans in Youngstown, Ohio are extremely concerned about intellectual property theft. Now, they might be. But it, it seems to be like an A plus B equals Tom Cotton. But maybe kind of they instance. but maybe they have <laughs> stolen
3: all our secrets. And it's but it's like this is one of these things where it's like you will Timson was like, well, if you knew all the things the Chinese <laughs> yeah. are doing, and I'm like, well, can you tell me? And they're like, well, no, of course not. That's a secret. <laughs> so I'm like, I don't know, man. Maybe maybe if I knew, I would agree with you. But I like to me it is a little hard after um Iraq and the whole uh, war on terror episode right. to take like super duper at least to take it face value all the people from that same world who are suddenly like oh uh Actually, China is the big problem. Right. Because, like, it's the same people who said that if I knew what they knew, like, I would understand. Why that we the were NSA going to Data <laughs> surveillance was... Not, and so I just, like, national security is weird, man. No,
2: I mean, it's an entire world of, like, this is why we absolutely need to keep the fi- the warrantless FISA process because of China slash Afghanistan slash Al-Qaeda slash Boko Haram slash whatever it is. So I think that there, that is a really good point because I think there's definitely a sense, um, you know, there have been a couple of conservative commentators who've made the point that, like, if Trump went on television and was like, this is what China is doing, this is why we are doing these things, and then people would be like, ah, that seems like a thing that we might want to do. But it, it seems like the line between here's what China is doing and here's what we're doing about it is incredibly blurry because it seems to be like, okay we're doing having retaliatory tariffs because of Confucius Institutes and it just like what you I think that the story here does not like there is no storyline.
3: Well and there was the, the the back and forth about the Huawei right yeah. where so it was like yeah. first he like came out of somewhere that Huawei – and I should say I, like my father-in-law told me years ago, he was like, you got to watch on this Huawei. They're putting spyware into our cell phone infrastructure. And I was like, well, you know, father-in-laws are going to do it. But then suddenly the, <laughs> suddenly the American intelligence community was, was agreeing with my father-in-law. So I, I owe Doug an apology. Um, but then Trump – keep saying, like, well, maybe we could take these sanctions off Huawei if China would buy more soybeans. And there there's like (laughs) a little bit of like an excluded – like either it's true that this Chinese telecom infrastructure company is a front for Chinese military intelligence, in which case like we should really be discouraging everybody from buying their infrastructure – or else we're trying to we're, – <laughs> we're like acting as the world's biggest soybean salesman. Um, but like there's no amount of soybeans that would be actually worth fundamentally compromising communications infrastructure over. And it's very like – Unclear, like but especially because it's totally plausible that Donald Trump just hasn't actually read these memos and like has no idea what the intelligence community is saying about Huawei.
2: Right.
1: You can't you can't run a consistency check across Trump administration statements and and actions because you just have no idea what he knows or doesn't know or what he thinks or doesn't think. Um, And so nothing has to match up at all, which is, uh, I think, I think a, a discouraging place to be. Um, to, to put this back on trade, though, for one other for, for, for one more minute. So Elizabeth Warren, I think, has come out with the most detailed and ambitious of the Democratic trade plans. And I've been struck by the very polarized reaction to that plan, where sort of the free trade community, um, and also the the sort of more mainstream economics community really seems to hate it. Uh, Paul Krugman doesn't like the plan, Daniel Dresner's been been slashing at it at the Washington Post. The the more left part of the party really likes it. And I think what everybody sort of agrees on is that Warren's plan would just mean a lot fewer trade deals. And, you know, depending on how you think about that, that's that's either fine or it's terrible. But but I'm a little struck by if you pull out of what's going on here, which is, Trump is reducing America's trade interconnectedness with the world. And he's got a bunch of arguments for that that don't totally make sense in a very confrontational style. But also the Democratic Party is is moving towards reducing America's level of trade integration with the world. And it's like maybe we're just uh, stumbling towards a new consensus here.
2: I I think it's interesting also because um, among the people who were really into Elizabeth Warren's economic patriotism plan would be Tucker Carlson, um, who... You don't say, Jane. You just spoke of it in <laughs> glowing terms. But I think it's interesting that like, that kind of – I've been fascinated by kind of the changing views on free trade and trade in general uh, that are coming from kind of liberals in the left. Because I, I remember um, the WTO protests in Seattle from many moons ago and just like this comprehension of the – perceived dangers of trade, which I think was is a sentiment that has existed across the political spectrum. And Trump was actually very smart to point out that it turned, you know, no matter how many people wrote for commentary or National Review about how free trade is very, very good and everybody likes it, it turns out what people think of when they think of free trade varies widely. Um, sometimes it is not. I can get cheaper goods that I like. And sometimes it is, I lost my job. And as far as I know, that job now is located in Laos or Vietnam. And I'm not super into that. But it's been interesting to see the kind of shifting views. And then you see, you know, Democrats, more centrist Democrats being like, you know, free trade is good. But they're having to contend with the fact that free trade being good is a case you need to make again.
3: Yeah, I would say, I mean, I think this is the fundamental point about Warren's plan and also the point she was making about TPP. Uh, and it goes back to uh, stuff Danny Roderick, a, a Harvard professor who, um, I don't know, I mean, Warren probably just knows her from like around the way in Cambridge. Him. Uh, as, as in him, uh, for, for a long time, is that the modern trade agreements are about regulatory harmonization, right? They're not about... Allowing commerce per se. They're about standardizing on rules in order to facilitate commerce. It's not that that's a bad idea necessarily. That, like, if you look at part of the reason for the European Union, right, is that, like, Belgium is really, really small. And people are not going to tailor-make their businesses around serving the Belgian market. So a little country is going to have to sort of give to somebody. And the EU is a mechanism through which a bunch of small and medium-sized countries can like team up and create a common regulatory framework, a single market they call it, right? Um, The US is really big. And so so we don't necessarily like need to have like a squad in the same way that – Belgium does. But the trade process is about us trying to like extend our squad to more and more places. And to the extent to which that's a good idea, I think really does hinge on – the content of the agreements in a way that I think a lot of political scientists, like if you heard the episode with Hillary Montfest that we did last week, you read Dan Dresner's column in uh, the Washington Post. These are like international relations people a- and they are a little like content agnostic. Like they just think it is good to like be in the process um, and that seems a little short cited to me like the the substance of economic policy matters a lot and it's reasonable for different countries to disagree about what's important and the question of like i keep coming back to this this dairy supply management thing in canada because this was a big win the obama administration got in tpp that then was lost by trump pulling out but that trump then got again in usmca and it's like Why is the American government so obsessed with Canadian dairy regulations, right? Like I agree analytically that the Canadian dairy regulations don't make sense and it would be in some sense like quote unquote better for them to change it and let us sell more American yogurt to Canada. But like we have our own weird shit. And, like, every country – like, what? what, why can't countries just decide, right? Like, if they want to make milk expensive to prop up some Quebec dairy farms, like, that seems well within the scope of, like, what electoral democracy is for. And I am just, like, side with Warren in not being sold on the fact – on the concept that, like, we need to go forward with all this. But it is very – you know, allergic, right? Like corporate America wants more markets. Uh, the foreign policy community wants a more elaborated alliance system. And, you know, I think there's like a tough, a tough battle that has not been properly joined on that. And
1: this, I think, is one of the interesting things about Warren's proposal, where she really is just saying that she is going to align American trade policy with like her version of American values. And what that is going to mean, everybody is saying, is that there will not be trade deals. And she's just like, fine. Like, I think one of the very kind of funny parts of her proposal is she has a list of conditions that countries need to meet in order to uh, have a trade deal with America. And we don't meet that list. And she says this, she's like, under my administration, we will like we will like sign the treaties and so on. Um, but but currently we don't. And so her idea is that, you know, she wants to use access to American trade negotiations as a lure. And she also says she'd use this list to renegotiate current trade deals, which I don't really believe, but is part of the the idea and part of why people are kind of freaking out about that in the in the business and trade communities. But to Matt's point, which I do think is is well put, it seems I don't know, reasonable, that what you would want to say is that these underlying trade things just aren't that important. And to the extent the American community, um, the foreign policy community, Congress and so on are going to use political capital and staff resources on things, it's not going to be on dairy. Uh, it's not going to be on moving more dairy. It's going to be on trying to get people to, you know, buy by the Paris Climate Accords or whatever it might be.
3: Right. I mean, th- this to me is like the fundamental question. It's like if you go with them, you, you write your list of like what are like big problems in America. And is like inadequate sales of U.S.-grown beef like really like a top order policy concern? Uh, like the, a, a big part of like Brexit drama is like the British, uh, the, the hard Brexiters are like, well, we'll just have a trade deal with America. And then the skeptics are like, yeah, but, you know, if we make a deal with America, they're going to make us uh, start accepting their chlorine-washed chicken. Um, which is apparently something that that English people view with horror um and it is analytically true that like this is a big thing, like if America is to do trade deals with Europe or a subset of Europe, like we are absolutely gonna be acting as like poultry salesman in chief and like you gotta take our chlorine washed chickens, but like like why right like what why are we promoting this like why is this important? I don't know. <laughs> Should we take a turn to healthcare, which is definitely important? I, I think your view is that healthcare isn't important. Yeah, it's important. <laughs> Let's take a break. Let's take a break and talk about
1: it. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop g podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on surprise, the future of work So we've got a uh, exciting NBR working paper here, The Impact of the ACA on Insurance Coverage Disparities After Four Years. And this is a bunch of co-authors, and they're all wonderful, but I'm not going to read and mispronounce all of their names. And one of the reasons I wanted to take a look at this is that a lot of the Democratic debates have revolved in sort of strange ways about Obamacare without anybody kind of really giving their estimation of what Obamacare did or didn't do or how far it went or how far it should still go. But, But these folks do it. And they're using data from um, 2011 to 2017. So one of their the contributions of their paper is that it's the first of these big analyses to use 2017 data. And so what they're trying to, to look at is as different parts of Obamacare rolled out, as different states expanded Medicaid, as you went from that 2010 to 14 period where it wasn't implemented to the period where it was, then after um, in 2017 when Donald Trump was now president, what did we actually see? in terms of expanding healthcare equity. So they're really looking at what were the inequities in people's access to insurance across different uh, um, profiles, so uh, income or marriage or race and so on, and what was it like by 2017. And the, the, the headline results are after four years, the fully implemented uh, Affordable Care Act Eliminated forty-four percent of the coverage gap across income groups, with the Medicaid expansion accounting for basically the entire reduction there, which is interesting. Um, Obamacare also reduced coverage of disparities across racial groups by twenty-six point seven percent, across marital status by forty-five percent, largely by helping single people quite a bit, and across age groups by forty-four percent. And those changes were attributable to both the Medicaid expansion and the the, the nationwide components. So I feel like there's actually a good baseline for for the Obamacare discussion. That's, these are big. If you had said to somebody a couple of years ago, we're going to um, eliminate the coverage of disparities across income by 44 percent, like that would be a big achievement. But also 44 percent is very far from 100 percent. And something that I, I just did a big piece. I'm talking to Democrats on the Senate Finance Committee about what they want to do on health reform next time. And I I can talk more about that, but it is interesting how much they're just purely thinking about now expanding public health insurance, um, given where Obamacare was in in 2009. And I think this is part of the reason that a lot of the really big gains, both in policy terms and in political terms, came from the public insurance uh, expansion, both because that targeted the poorest people, which is a big reason that it ends up having the the, the biggest effect here, but also just because it was simple. And if you um, were eligible, you could sign up for it um, if you were in a state that expanded it. And so people kind of have a sense of how to do that. And, and there's really good uh, evidence that it worked.
4: Yeah, I mean,
3: I kind of feel like, to, to me, this is part of a sort of growing literature that, that I think of in my head is the kind of like the the incredible shrinking affordable Care Act, right, that like it turns out that the ACA did enormous good, but that a huge share of that good is attributable to Medicaid expansion that was not like the main subject of controversy during the time it was passed. And just because it wasn't the main subject of controversy is not to say that like Republicans would have loved it or did love it, like, but if what had happened was like a straightforward tax the rich, use it to expand Medicaid, that is uncontroversially a budget reconciliation agreement, right? Like you could have gotten that done with like a lot less muss and fuss than went into the actual existing Affordable Care Act. But also people would have found it very preemptively disappointing, right? That like this was supposed to be like universal health care uh, plays an outsized role in left-of-center people's right. uh, policy assessments because it is such a strong cultural differentiator between the United States and the more civilized uh, welfare states of uh, the British Commonwealth and Europe, right? So, like, there's this, this, this totemic desire for a universal health care bill that will make us be less exceptional. And the ACA was on some level, like, supposed to be that, And then it wound up not being that, which drives, I think, so much uh, disappointment with it and, you know, continued interest in Medicare for all type stuff. But like when you look at it in concrete terms, right, like a smallish subset of all the yelling and uh, fussing around of the ACA has like done an incredible amount of good. And it's why even the like – Now it's like the ambitious progressives want to do like Medicare for all, but the like really timid, most cowardly moderates also want to do more expansion of public healthcare programs, right? Because it it, it just – it turns out that public sector healthcare programs are very effective. There's like a million other questions around – putting everybody on one but it's like they work well they're cost effective people get enrolled on them like them fine
2: right because so, you are going from no health care to some health care rather than going from a version of health care to another version of health care which makes sense like there's right. there's something to be like that public expansion and especially because in general and, and it's interesting because i think it's one of those funny like kind of class discussion moments the people who would benefit most from this are the people who are probably talking the least about medicare for all because to go from z- if anyone's ever gone from z- having zero access to healthcare to having some access to healthcare you are like you're not getting you know the cadillac plan that people discuss so much in 2009 2010 but you are getting something and that is better you are not going from some health care to the Cadillac plan, in a sense. So I think that that part of discussion and how it's it's interesting to talk to think about how, you know, a lot of folks on the left are generally agreed on public expansion. It just how it seems to be parsed out and talked about and by whom is interesting.
1: Pulling us a bit out of the, the presidential space. So one of the things I, I've been working on recently is I've been talking to members of the Senate Finance Committee about what they want to do in health reform next time. And this has been a, a bit of a frustration for me in the debate where the presidential plans get a lot of attention. But like Obamacare is basically written by Max Baucus, who is the Senate Finance Committee chairman at the time. And uh, if Democrats retake the Senate, the Finance Committee will be chaired by Ron Wyden, who is from Oregon and is like a like a serious healthcare wonk. He was behind the, the bipartisan wyden Bennett bill. He's also a a, a guy who's like frustrated Democrats a lot. He had a bipartisan bill with Paul Ryan at one point, sort of like uniting um Paul Ryan's Medicare premium support with like a more pro-Medicare dimension to it. And that really pissed Democrats off. So it's like some question of like, what would he be willing to do? Uh, Debbie Stabenow from Michigan will chair the, the health subcommittee. Patty Murray will be chairing um the Health, Educations, Labor and Pensions Committee, which is less powerful on health care than finance, despite its name, but is nevertheless important. And so I was talking to Uh Wyden and Stabenow and Sherrod Brown and, and Mark Warner, all of whom are on finance. And I was really struck by how much agreement they're actually in now. So for one thing, to to the whole discussion we just had about private insurance, which was built like the the intense Democratic interest in in building a private hybrid system, especially because there's a theory that would be more politically sellable. I mean, it'd work better in in Massachusetts. And, you know, that was the, the hope. And then just didn't. And so none of them, including the ones who I think of as almost like professionally bipartisan, like Warner and Wyden, none of them say they're going into this looking for Republican votes. I mean, they're just like perfectly clear, like this is going to be a Democratic project. And from there, it's just like they want to do something with expanding Medicare. But the way they seem to think about it is a Medicare branded public option and then dropping the age of the Medicare program itself down to 50, which um, Stabenow is able to do. It has 20 co-sponsors. Um, and then they want to do something on prescription drugs, and like that's the game, you know. They 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 can probably do that or most of it or all of it through budget reconciliation. They talk a lot about making it simple in a way it wasn't Obamacare is super complicated, but you can do those three things, and it's a pretty simple message. And it was interesting to just hear that they're like the. Senate Democrats seem to have a pretty clear sense of where they want to go. Like they very much see it as building out the parts of Obamacare that got killed by like Ben Nelson and Joe Lieberman in 2009 and making them somewhat stronger than they were then. Uh, but it's a it's a pretty like straightforward vision. This is also under
3: hypnosis, what <laughs> what the people at Bernie's corner admit their actual plan is. Right. Is really? the, yeah. I mean, you know. Not really, really, quote unquote. <laughs> but like, there is, there are a lot of interesting thoughts from people in the Bernie sphere about uh, like strategic bargaining logic and overton windows and things like that. Right? I think there is a profound sense that you go in with a high bid. And then you come out with like something the moderates are comfortable with saying this was the moderate alternative to the scary... Bernie universe um, that is, you know, a little different from some of the political revolution rhetoric. I remember having a, a, a conversation with like a teary-eyed Hill staffer sometime in 2009, somebody who, who worked for a, a freshman senator who had like worked in the 06 and 08 cycles. And she was like, we're not even going to get a public option. And I was like, no, like the plan was always to bargain away the public option, right? And, you know, I don't I, really
1: agree that that was the plan, but for the record,
3: okay. <laughs> Uh, I feel like it was the plan. At any rate, I mean, I just I think that there is more awareness among the the leaders of the left camp that like this stuff is not going to happen than they are willing to admit, but that they think it is very constructive. That like what everyone is talking about now, right? Like all those ideas you listed, Ezra, they involve a giving up on the quest for Republican votes and B cracking down on industry stakeholders in order to benefit patients rather than kind of like weird backflips about, you know, like improving utilization or skin in the game and other stuff like that, right? That like wherever Democrats land, if they do well in 2020, it's going to be directionally along the lines of the single payer vision. That, like, you need to just impose price controls, use taxes, spend money, and, like, you're off to the races.
1: So I I can't speak. When I've spoken to Bernie World about this, that is— Not the impression I've gotten, but I don't want to I don't want to speak them on uh, on this more. What I want to note is that I do think that there's a lock in effect that happens. It is hard for candidates and presidents to get out of if you spend a year like really going to the mat on, say, abolishing private insurance. And that was like the whole way you defined yourself. And then you like get into office and immediately Ron Wyden says, well, you know, we're not getting rid of private insurance, Um, then it's hard to drop that. But if you go to war with the the Democrats in the Senate, you end up as Jimmy Carter. And so it's a it's a tough space. But uh, in part, I think it's resolved to the extent it is resolved. in that I think they're a little bit more serious about it than you do. But but without making this like another kind of Bernie um, dimension, I'm struck by how much the Senate Democrats really see themselves as completing the work of Obamacare. I mean, you were talking about the plan was always to to get rid of the public option. But, you know, I was talking to Sherrod Brown for this piece, and he was part of a negotiating group that when they couldn't pass a public option, Reid formed this group that included um, members of the help committee, members of the finance committee, uh, liberals and moderates. And they were supposed to come up with like a compromise, that, like a compromise to the compromise. And so what they came up with was getting uh, dropping the Medicare age down to 55. And people were really excited about that. And they thought that was going to pass and that was going to be a really big deal. And then Joe Lieberman killed it. And he just said he would he had supported this policy in the past. He had like backed it. And then he said he would filibuster the entire bill, um, which they couldn't uh, would have destroyed the bill um, if they supported it. And. So they lost that, And the bitterness of that is really it runs really deep, like Sherrod Brown, like wanted to make sure I understood that he was on the record when he said Lieberman was just doing the bidding of Hartford insurance companies. And so I, I was just really struck by given how much like the conversation, at the percentage level is working backwards from different forms of Medicare for all, how much the conversation in the Senate is working forwards from Obamacare how much they see themselves as like completing the work and they are proud of having their names on that bill. And it's a pretty different psychology there in ways that I think are going to be important and are underappreciated right now. True.
2: I agree.
3: Yes. No. I, I. I think. I think that's. I think that's absolutely right. Um, okay. So uh, I, I think we should. We should leave it at that. Uh, but thanks, Ezra, for, for joining us today. Also, want to remind people there's going to be a Weeds live show in Seattle with me, Jane, and Vox.com's own David Roberts, a Seattle resident. Uh, this is happening on September 10th. Tickets are just ten bucks. Go to TownHallSeattle.org and and you can get them. Um, hope to see you there. Thanks as always to our producer Jeffrey Geld. The Weeds will return on Friday.